Once again, take note of the, the questions on the screen. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Merry Christmas. Our Christmas text this morning is Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. Last week we finished chapter 8, and we saw how the second group of returnees led under the leadership of Ezra, and by the hand of God, they left Babylonia, and after a four-month journey, they arrived in, in Jerusalem. This morning, as we look at chapter 9, another problem arises even though they're in Jerusalem, even though they're in Israel. This time it's an internal problem. It's not external. It's not pressures from the people around them, but it's what the people themselves have been giving themselves into. When we thought Ezra could, could get to Jerusalem and do everything that he was supposed to do to do what the king wanted him to do, to appoint magistrates and judges, and as Ezra was setting his heart and his mind to study the scriptures, to teach the scriptures, and to apply the scriptures from Ezra 7, 10, it was his desire to do these things. Just when we thought that this is what he is going to do, we see the consequences of what Ezra does. Ezra preaches and teaches and studies the word of God, and the consequences of doing so begin to appear. When you faithfully teach and proclaim the scriptures, bubbling up will come some very nefarious things. Whenever the Bible is taught and proclaimed, sin always begins to show its face. It gets dragged into the light. And the response to the preaching of the Word of God is either anger and contempt to it, to then want to destroy the messenger. We see that throughout the Old Testament, not to mention today. Things do not change. So we see a one response is anger and contempt to destroy and silence the messenger, or there's a response of repentance and brokenness. Wherever there are people, there is sin, even if it's God's people. There is sin. Whether it is Israel, God's people of the Bible, the Old Testament, or it is in the church, there is sin because the church is made up of sinners. I don't have to tell you that. Y'all know that. It's one of the reasons why you're here. Not just because you know that you are a sinner. That is very important to understand and know. But more than that, because we together have such a glorious Savior who would save and redeem and forgive such sinners. How do we then respond to sin when, is it, when it is exposed? How do you respond to your own sin when it is exposed by the Scripture? How do you respond to the sin of others and to the corporate sin of the church? Let's look to Ezra chapter 9. And see how Ezra responded. Ezra chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Hold on tight, we're going to read the whole chapter. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations from the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithfulness, faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, 
I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of God, of the God of Israel, because of the, of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting with my garment and with my cloak torn and fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, O oh my God. I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has been mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we are kings, and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the land to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to the utter shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within the holy place, within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves Yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O oh our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is the land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons and seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for the inheritance to your children forever. After all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this. Shall we break your commands again and intermarry with peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consume us so that there would be no remnant nor any to escape? O oh Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant, has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in, in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. This is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. What a Christmas text, huh? But we'll, I'll show you how it connects. Sin, the response to sin, and the mercy and grace of God is what is in view in this chapter. In verses 1 through 5, we see right from the outset that Ezra learns about the egregious sin that has become rampant within the people of Israel. And not just the people, but within its leaders and its priests. Now, just a kind of a little bit of an explanation. Only being in Jerusalem for about a month, Ezra and that second group of returnees, this means that most likely, because of the nature of the sin and the timing, it means that the people that just returned back were probably not the ones involved within this particular sin. But they, re they learns of it that the returnees previously their children and their grandchildren 
have been given into this particular sin. In the rest of the chapter, we see Ezra's prayer before the Lord in response to the egregious sin that has taken place within Israel. In Ezra's prayer, who, Ezra, who has only been there for just a short time, notice how he doesn't lay blame on others only to share with God how this isn't my fault. He sounds nothing like the self-righteous Pharisee who prays, thank you God, I am not like that guy or those people. Yes, Ezra is appalled, he is ashamed, he is embarrassed, but he shares in their guilt. He includes himself as part of the guilty. He prays especially in light of their history of sin as a nation. The sin of neglecting God's word over and over and over again. He prays especially in recent history, recounting God's mercy and God's grace and his immeasurable blessings and favor and care and love and provision in delivering his people. I thought about the story or the passage of the sin of Achan. Joshua just had led the, the nations into the promised land. They took a great they, they, they took the great walled city of Jericho without even having to storm the gates or having to lay siege to the city for months, but instead they followed the Lord's command to march around the city for seven days, seven times each day, and then on the seventh day, on the seventh time around the city, they would blow their trumpets and they would scream as loud as they could, and the walls of the city came tumbling down, right, as the song goes. The walls of this, what did, by the way, that's a children's song. <laughs> they went in and they decimated the people. That verse is not included. They destroyed, the walls of the city came lying down. They were commanded as they conquered the city to, to destroy everything, to kill everyone, to take all of the gold and all the treasure and declare it to be holy and to be set apart for the Lord. But everything else was to be destroyed. And why? Because anything else that they would take would do what? Would potentially distract them and lead them away from the greatest treasure, the Lord himself. So we know the story, but what happens next? Well, Joshua moves the, next, the people to conquer the, the next group of people, the next city. They were supposed to conquer them. They were, they were supposed to come in and, and beat them just like they did with Jericho. But Israel was defeated badly. They had massive casualties. And Joshua was absolutely dismayed, not understanding, Lord, didn't you say that if we come in, we trust you, we follow you, guide you, that you are going to be with us? He's broken before the Lord in the same ways that we see Ezra broken before the Lord. And the Lord tells Joshua, why are you surprised when, there's, when there is sin in the camp. For the man Achan kept for himself and his family a cloak, 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold. Achan disobeyed the word of God and sold out his brothers and sisters who paid the price of death. How could, how could Achan disobey the Lord? How could he Look to see that this bar of gold and silver is greater than what he has been seeing God do. How could he desire stuff and things more than he could desire God? Well, that's the kind of situation we see here. You hear it in, you hear it in Ezra's voice. You see it in Ezra's posture. The tearing of his clothes and pulling out his hair. You've seen the mighty hand of God deliver us over and over again. 
then Ezra responds this way because he knows the Lord. He knows the Lord. He knows the Lord intimately. And when you waver, and when you turn away from the Lord in disobedience, that the hand of judgment would come. How were they willing to turn from the Lord and neglect His word for worldly lives? The specific situation at hand, the sin in question is one that we must address. In chapter 9, it tells us that the Jews have been intermarrying with the people of the land, meaning they were marrying other people than the Jews. And what it ultimately means is that as they did this, they had become like everyone else in the land. There was little distinction between the Jew, who was to be separate and holy, and the Gentiles of the land. They began to marry one another. And this was a direct, specific command from the Lord in the Old Testament of what not to do. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, 1 through 4, it's made pretty clear. Make no covenant with them. Show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For, and this is very important, for they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. This is severe. This is important. Because look at verse 1. They, meaning all the Jews, including the leaders, have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. They have become just like them, living lives of abomination before God, which is direct wickedness in the eyes of God. A complete disregard to the word of God. So this sin of intermarrying has, has come to light. And it's very important not to intermarry with non-Israelites. Listen very carefully. is not about racism. This has nothing to do with racism. It has everything to do about holiness and religion. Moses married a Midianite. Boaz married Ruth, a Moabite. And there are massive differences between Zephorah and Ruth and what these Jews were doing. Because Zephorah and Ruth trusted in the Lord, and followed the Lord, forsaking all of their gods and all of their former beliefs to follow the Lord. And here in Ezra chapter 9, it was the exact op opposite. They were a part of those detestable things and abominations. They neither separated themselves nor did their spouses separate themselves from the abominations and the detestable practices of sin and direct wickedness before God. Verse 2 calls this faithlessness. So the problem is not ethnicity, it's not race. It's not the color of skin, but of religion and holiness and morality and obedience to the scriptures. These intermarriages did what? They, they drew the people away from God, furthering them away from Him and furthering them away from obedience to the word of God from the scripture until, listen, as it says, there was no distinction there's no distinction. It's like us losing all of our saltiness. It means Jesus says that we would be tasteless before the world. 
And this is exactly the same track that Israel took that led them into exile in the first place. There is nothing new underneath the sun when it comes to sin. Think about how bad things must have been to how they have gotten used to, grown accustomed to the abominations and such detestable things that that chances are when their grandparents entered the land that they were appalled by it. That they were appalled, that they were taken back, and they were embarrassed that they have to live in the same land as these other people. And now they have grown accustomed to it, to uniting with these people, these unholy people in marriage. This sin is about holiness and obedience to the Word of God, as all of our sins are the same. I need to make another important point, another point in distinction. In verse 2, it says, For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. Ezra makes a reference to a very important term, holy race. This isn't a supreme race of inherent value upon heritage or skin color or any of that other stuff. But this holy race, which also could be translated as holy offspring or holy seed, and this is very important and that's very important, this holy race is speaking and directing of God's elect, of God's people, God's holy offspring. And this this seed, right, this holy seed, this race, this holy seed is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Bible, all the way back from Genesis 3, because this, this from the seed, right, is what? The seed of the woman. This holy seed is of the seed of the woman. Genesis chapter 3 is the one from the seed of the woman would be what? The one who will come and crush the serpent's head. And so again, think about how egregious this sin is. To mix the holy seed, the seed of the woman, with the seed of the serpent. Showing no regard for the coming promise and their intermarrying endangers the fulfillment of that promise. Listen, they were forsaking a relationship with the Lord and faith in His promises so that they could snuggle up with snakes. No wonder, no wonder then Ezra responds the way that he does with such appalling and righteous indignation and brokenness and the tearing of his clothes and his cloak and pulling out his hair and weeping all day. Because Ezra sees the poor exchange made. The poor exchange for what is fake and sensual and small and fleeting and useless. There is no greater travesty than to choose to walk away from God so that you can embrace a sinful human. To forsake the Almighty for one of His creatures who turns you against Him. The reason why sin is so repulsive is because it's exchanging the glory of God and the promises of God for false idols that end up lying to us and the detestable behaviors that that those lies try to validate. It's a horrible exchange. It's a poor exchange for stuff that masquerades as abundant life but only enslaves and ruins lives. Brothers and sisters, in our culture of goofball tolerance, it's stupid. Everyone is not overreacting to sin. If anything, we underreact. 
Ezra is not blowing out of proportion someone else's personal life choices. Ezra is not being dramatic. You see, because Ezra deeply feels and he deeply understands the reality of sin. Why? Because he believes God's word. And we've seen that, right? He believes God's word. He knows that God is holy. And in God's holy, he will justly judge sin. And he will pour out his wrath upon sinners. But he also knows God's love and his mercy and his grace. And he responds the way he does physically and how he prays because he knows God's word. And it is God's word that exposes this sin. So first... I want you to understand that the Word of God exposes sin. When it is clearly taught and when it's, when it's proclaimed, it will expose the sin of people. Ezra had been proclaiming the Word. There's no doubt in my mind that is what he did when he got there. Begin proclaiming it, begin teaching it, been applying it. As we see, that was his desire in Ezra 7, verse 10, and living out the word. And that brought about a change. It brought about an exposing of this sin of the people. Ezra was teaching, and it was, it was verse 1, it was the officials that came to Ezra to confess this sin. Then in verse 4, others joined Ezra in the lament and brokenness to the exposed sins, as it says, all who trembled, all who trembled at the words of God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles. Those in verse 4 trembled at the word of God because they believed the word of God. They knew that God keeps his word. They knew that God has said he will do it if his words are disregarded and neglected and seeing outright sin all around them all day long. They knew that God's word had been disregarded and that caused them to tremble in fear before a holy, righteous God. There are the different responses to the word of God. We can be joyful when we read the scripture and study the scripture. We can be in wonder and in delight. We can be serious. And we can even laugh at times. But there are times when we come to the scriptures where we should tremble at God's word. The first use of the law is to teach of us of the greatness of our sins and the misery of our sin, and the impending judgment of a holy God upon all of those who have transgressed against him. And that then is to drive us, drive us to the grace and mercy of God and into the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the Israelites, when these particular ones heard the teaching of the word of God, they became convicted of their sins of their personal sin and their corporate sin. And it broke them, and it caused them to tremble in light of God's character and nature and his word, and it drove them to him. It's the role of God's word, one of the roles, to call God's people to holiness and obedience, to turn from sin and to turn toward him, don't you think that this is the very reason why God sent Ezra to proclaim the word that his people would turn back to him? Is this not the same for us? Why God has given us his word? That each time we come to the scriptures, each morning when we wake up and we get a cup of coffee and we sit down to read and study the Bible, when we gather together as men on Thursday nights or the women do on Sunday nights or Sunday mornings as we do, 
It may not be what we want to see. It may not be what we want to hear about ourselves over and over. It's not flattering to be confronted or exposed by our sin and by our unbelief. But as we study it, brothers and sisters, and as we read it, brothers and sisters, the Scriptures will have its outstanding effect on our life just as we see in Ezra. It will have its effect on the body of Christ. It will show you what it means and what it looks like to be distinct and what it means to be holy. And again, as we see in the New Testament, what it means to be salty. Not salty in the sailor kind of way. But something that's tasteful. It will have its effect. The scripture will over time and will show each of us our blind spots, every place in our hearts where, where maybe we are not honoring God and honoring the Lord. And just as it exposed the sin in the Jews about their intermarriages, so it does to expose how we might have united ourselves with sin and not even know it, or we might have grown accustomed to it. So each morning when you open up your Bibles, prepare yourself and prepare your hearts. Pray that the Lord would expose your heart and your sin, that even though it may hurt, it is drawing you to a greater place with the Lord. A faithful friend will tell you like it is. They will tell you right to your face the truth. And like a faithful friend, the scriptures will always tell you the truth about yourself. If you have ears to hear. It will expose your sins and it will guide you into holiness to be distinct from the world around us. I want to encourage you that, that if this has been your experience with the Word of God and, and you've experienced that, although how the Scriptures have transformed you and has exposed even sins in, in your life and drawn you into repentance and holiness and, and in a greater joy in Christ, then I would encourage you to tell others. Tell others. Tell other Christians about that. Tell others how God has worked through his word because that will encourage them to lean more into the word of God, into the scriptures. Some of the most powerful and most encouraging times in the life of this church is when we have heard from one another of what God has done in our lives. This has been some of the most powerful times in our, in our church. And so what's so glorious about, about hearing from another person of what God has done? Well, it's not the person, but it's what God has done, and that is what is encouraging. The Word of God exposes sin, and it leads us into holiness like still waters. You can't keep that to yourself. I encourage you to share with how God has used His Word in your life that it may encourage others. Secondly, is the response to sin. When, is sin. when sin is exposed, what do we do? How do we respond? Well, I think Ezra's prayer, though speaking corporately, is still a moving and memorable prayer. And I think for any Christian who studies this and has read this, can understand deeply their own sin nature, their own past, their own present, and their own possible future with sin, the sins of their fellow brothers and sisters, and the priority and the necessity of holiness, then Ezra's prayer is something that sounds and feels quite familiar. Because it's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of dependence. It's a prayer of Repentance. It's a prayer of realigning our, our gaze upon God and less on ourselves. Breaking down this prayer, first, Ezra's prayer shows us that sin can be corporate in nature. 
I said at the beginning that Ezra's prayer, I've said that already in the beginning, but Ezra's prayer is written in a first-person plural, which is his way of identifying himself with all the people of God, implicating himself as a sinner with them. When they were affecting, right, the sin was affecting one people, as Ezra knew. Sins affect the others. It included him. Each of us are personally responsible for our own sin. And each of us must personally confess our sin and repent of our sin. But each sin has its effect on the body in one way or another, because we are the body of Christ. There are some corporate sins that we, that we all can commit together where we're all not individually at fault in particular, but where everyone in general is at fault, such as corporate neglect of church discipline or the preaching of the scriptures or maybe areas of pride or envy or hypocrisy or greed. And we can and we should remember and confess our corporate sins. And I think this is a model of that, as we see Ezra do. I think the Lord's Prayer shows us that we can confess the sins of not only ours, but also corporately forgive us of our debts. When a church has become stagnant or lukewarm, it is often because they have neglected the confession of sin privately and corporately, which is often due to the lack of Christ-centered expositional preaching. It goes back to the first point, doesn't it? So first, Ezra's prayer is corporate in nature. Second, Ezra's prayer shows us that sin must be confessed. And I know that sounds obvious, and I know that sounds like a, a, a no-brainer, but when we are complacent, we are often complacent in the confession of sin. Listen to how Ezra confesses. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. You can almost hear in his voice that, that Ezra is almost struggling to really express the brevity of their treason before God. I can't even do it. And the reason is, is because we can't. When you trespass the infinite, there are no amount of words that you can accurately describe our treachery. And yet, like Ezra, we must still come and confess our sins confess our sin, and to never make light of our sin. He's not making light of this sin. Our guilt is over our heads. What does that mean? We are drowning. We are out of oxygen and dying. Do you feel the burden of your sin this way when you confess? But notice as well has Ezra moves in in the prayer to confess very specifically the sins that they have committed and even reciting the commandments that they have broken. Brothers and sisters, this is how we confess our sin. We address it specifically. We do not hide from it. We do not hide from how we have transgressed against the Lord and against His holiness. So second, we confess our sins. Third, Ezra's prayer shows us that where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You're like, about time for some good news. I feel like you've been yelling at us the whole time. That's quoting from Romans 5.20. Ezra recognizes the grace of God in this passage. In verse 8, he says, But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord, our God, to leave us a remnant 
and to give us a secure hold within this holy place, within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Meaning, in these times, God has been gracious to us. You know, sometimes it's funny when we see children do things that, you know, we know that they're not supposed to, but it's still kind of funny, right? It's still kind of, it's still kind of funny or it's cute. You know, sometimes our response to, to our own sin and to the sin of others may be like that, where we trivialize disobedience to the Lord. We make light of it. And quite possibly it's because we're making light of our very own sin. Sin that is trivialized and, and minimized as not as a big deal or not as our business, we are saying things like, God will forgive because that's the way he is, meaning that it's okay to sin because God will give grace, is really saying that we do not understand grace. We absolutely, we absolutely believe in grace. And if we don't, we've got to change our name. We believe in grace. And we are so thankful for God's grace. We wanted to bring that before you. Each and every week, the grace of God. Because it's absolutely by His grace that we are saved and forgiven of our sins. But as Christians, we should detest sin. We should hate sin and be tore up by sin. By our, by our own sin, primarily because we know of all people what it costs to be forgiven of that sin. The price of the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the violent death of the Son of God was the price paid for your sin and for my sin. Grace was not cheap. So let's not think that it is by trivializing our sin and the sins of others. Let's be grieved. Let's weep over our sin and others' sin. But let's not trivialize it. Let's be humble before the Lord. Grace continues in his prayer in verse 9. Ezra recognizes that it is by God's grace to give them all the favor and blessings before the king. It was by God's grace that gave them freedom and a renewed temple and protection. All of which, as he says, all of which we do not deserve. Verse 13, and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, meaning all the judgment we receive because of our evil deeds, what we have done, put us into exile, into slavery, and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us, how? Less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such a remnant as this. Christ took all that we deserve. He bore in himself all that we deserve. God did not just punish us less, but he punished us none. But he bore it upon his son. Oh, how God has been so gracious to us, to you and to, to me. Let us pray when we ask for forgiveness and we're dealing with our sin and we are confessing our sin and we don't want to deal with it. I get it, man, I get it. But remember his grace. Remember the cross. That where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And lastly, Ezra's prayer shows us that sinners must rely on the gospel. Ezra casts himself and Israel upon the mercy of God saying in verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, 
For we have left the remnant uh, that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. And we are guilty. And so the only, only by returning to you, and for us, we believe the gospel is where we are cured of this guilt. And we cast ourselves upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And I think essentially this is the point of the passage. He's pointing to their greater need for a Savior. We cast ourselves completely to the Lord for His mercy, for His grace, believing the gospel, having faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are, not, we are not forgiven, this is very important, we are not forgiven because of how we have prayed or how we have tears, but we are forgiven solely because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we put our faith in Him. And we pray in faith. Our prayers and confession are repentance and faith. I quoted earlier from the self-righteous Pharisee who was praying in the temple. But the tax collector, the one who was guilty before God, the one who knew that he was a sinner, prayed, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, who do you think went, went away that day from the temple forgiven of their sins and justified? We trust in the work of Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And we praise the Lord for this glorious gospel that we have been given. Can you this morning at all identify with Israel? Or maybe with Ezra and how he prays? I think we all should. We are all guilty before the Lord of joining ourselves with sin. And the, the Lord does not owe any one of us mercy or grace. We deserve nothing but wrath. We have nothing but our idols. But let me give you some good news. Some good tidings of great joy. Some Christmas good news by reading a really good Christmas passage that is not in the Gospels, but in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer slaves, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. That at the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, the seed of the woman, right? Here's the preservation of the, of the, of the holy seed. So of born of the woman, what was he sent here to do? To redeem those who are under the law. Remember the first use of the law does what? It shows us of our, of our great wickedness and evil and sin before God, how we have transgressed before him. He sent him to redeem us under the law. Those who were slaves to sin and death and those who could not fulfill the law, but one who came to fulfill the law has redeemed us by doing what? By taking on flesh. That's the, the incarnation. Emmanuel, we've been singing it all morning. Emmanuel, God with us, taking on flesh, becoming like us. To suffer and die in our place, which is the purpose of Christmas. To suffer and die in our place so that we might receive adoptions as sons. 
to become heirs, to be brought into God's family, what grace he has shown through us. And that is the joy of Christmas. The joy of Christmas. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those whom he is pleased. 1 Timothy 1.15 The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Meaning, after I say this, you say amen with everything you got. That Christ Jesus came into the world Christmas to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Amen! That's what Christmas means. So brothers and sisters, beloved church, always be in the Word of God. Always confess your sin and repenting of your sin. And always rely on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that is a Merry Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Will it have its full effect in our lives, in our hearts? Lord, that is, it exposes our own sin, our complacency to confess and to repent, our fear and anxiety for leaning on our own understanding and not on yours, Lord, and your wisdom and your guidance and your gospel and your grace and your mercy. Lord, would you teach us even to pray as Ezra prayed? Father, bring glory to your name and bring about great joy this Christmas season in your people through your word. Be with us as we respond now. Let us encourage one another of your great work, that we would encourage one another to lean in. Lord, we love you. We give you all the glory. Amen.